Hi everyone, it's Joaki Makren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast. Podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. In this week's podcast episode, I'm talking with Mika Tammenkoski, who is the co-founder and CEO of Metacore Games, the company that is well known for their hit game Merge Mansion. In this discussion with Mika, we talk about his long journey in gaming, what he has picked up on leadership and startups from all the projects that he's been involved with, and what Mika thinks about building teams, pivoting, and increasing the likelihood of finding a hit game. The dilemma at the heart of mobile gaming. Monetizing your great work while keeping gamers engaged and not distracted by intrusive ads. Well, our partners on this podcast have a very clever solution. AudioMob delivers in-game audio ads so that game developers can monetize their players without interrupting gameplay. Audio ads are better at retaining happy gamers than video ads and can actually work alongside video ads too. This is all the while having much higher CPMs than banner ads, up to 600% higher. AudioMob's Unity plugin is simple to set up. It can take just minutes, allowing complete privacy control, and you can even reward players for extra gratification. Simple, clever, and rewarding. Go to audiomob.com for details and to speak to the team. All right, we're recording. Hi, Mika. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. It's great to have you. So much to talk about. You've been in the industry for ages, it feels like. I've, I started only a few years later than you, but like we've together seen the, the Finnish industry, games industry, go through all the different cycles, especially the mobile scene, which we're going to be talking a lot about. Like, how long is the mobile games industry already in Finland? What would you say? Well, it depends on where you start counting. So I start counting yeah. from the second generation. So that's the downloadable apps phones mm. that came out originally in, in uh, 2000, 2001 in Western markets. Of course, iMod in Japan was big already, so we could see that that could happen. And that's second, yeah. second generation for me because WAP was before that. And yep. uh, there were some games for those phones, but it was quite uh, inferior. Yeah, the, it's good that we sort of graduated quickly from the first to the second. I, I was there as well as a programmer for half a year during the first generation. Yeah, let, let's get into the to the discussions. But first off, can you tell the audience your origin story in three-minute summary of how you made your way into gaming and to eventually now have uh, Metacore, which you founded? Origin story sounds really grand, but, and I feel like I have been really, really super lucky that I have gotten into the industry, but maybe, maybe I should start already from like way back in, in early eighties when I was a small boy and uh, we got the Commodore week 20 as a Christmas present. And that's how I first got exposed to games. And I really fell in love with games. I remember early on, I wanted to be making games. I don't know if I really knew that, that that could be a profession, but I wanted to be making games when I when I grow up. Then from uh, VIC-20, we got to Commodore 64 and then eventually to PC. I wanted to have an Amiga, but my father didn't didn't want to buy one. He, he wanted to uh, get us a PC. And I actually think that that was quite fortunate at the time. So we got the PC uh, in late 80s and then I discovered this. So this is 
it really is ancient times. It was pre-internet times. And uh, I don't know how many know BBSs nowadays, but those were basically servers that had call-in lines that you called into, and uh, they were communities. Best BBSs even had multiple call-in lines, so you could have real-time chats with people. It really sounds basic now, but it was like uh, life-changing back in the day. Through those BBSs, I got into the demo scene in Finland. I got to know some people. I got interested in in making demos, uh, using my programming skills uh, skills to that. We founded a, a group. We never launched anything though. We we never got any demos or intros out. We always worked hard, but but didn't get in, anything released. But it was still a good learning experience. And through the demo scene, I got to know people who were actually working in the games industry. So, for example, working at Remedy and some of the founders of of Remedy. And that's how I landed a job at Remedy in '96 as a games pro- uh, programmer. So. I, I feel like from small boy on, I wanted to get into the games and I managed to get into the games early on. So I, I think that was uh, super, super lucky. At Remedy, there were a lot of young, passionate, enthusiastic people who wanted to be making big games, but we didn't have any experience. And the, the experience was quite painful, to be honest. Uh, we learned things the hard way. Many of the things we learned the hard way. And I felt like uh, I have to move into a, where the learning cycle is faster, that the long projects, they don't enable, let us to learn fast enough. And uh, that's how I got into mobile games. So this was the ch- second generation of, of downloadable Java games. Me and some other people, we founded a company called Sumea. Back in the day, VC funding was not a norm in games in Finland. Nowadays, things are entirely different. We tried to raise VC but uh, didn't succeed in that. To be honest, we also didn't really have a track record, so maybe that's not that bad. But nevertheless, we got some traction. Uh, we were young and, and stubborn and passionate. We got some traction, and eventually Sumia was acquired by Digital Chocolate in 2004. And for the ones who don't know, Digital Chocolate is a US-based, or was a US-based company uh, from Silicon Valley, founded by Trip Hawkins, the legendary Trip Hawkins who was also the founder of uh, EA and 3DO. I was at uh, DJOC until uh, 2009. I learned a lot. I think that was really, really a great experience for me that I still still think back to quite often. And after that, I don't think many remember, but the uh, games industry looked quite different at the time. So in 2009, free-to-play was not a norm yet. The Apple uh, iPhone was out and Android phones were out. Those had transformed the mobile games market quite a bit. Paid games were still a thing. But there was this race to the bottom in pricing. So uh, the games were sold for, for, for $1. So talk about LTV in that case and what you can spend, spend on marketing. Also, at the, at the same time, I got interested in working more broadly with uh, startups. I was a big, big fan of uh, Y Combinator, founded by Paul Graham. And uh, that got me and some other people found Magnifier. The idea was to, to create Y Combinator sort of investment vehicle here in Finland. How naive that now sounds, but but it, it sounded like a good idea back then. Uh, and then I also, also worked uh, more broadly with, with other startups as an advisor and did a bit of consulting here and there. Then I got excited about HTML5, tried to create a startup using HTML5, especially on mobile, which was a really bad idea. Then in 2015, me and some other people got excited about uh, smartwatches as a games platform. We founded Everywhere Games. Then we did a pivot into mobile games in 2018 and uh, rebranded the company to Metacore in 2020. And that's how we get to stage. I think I took more than three minutes, but that's about the story. Yeah, I, I think there's so much there to unpack. Let's go back and talk a bit about situation so you were one of the original founders that eventually became part of digital chocolate if you think about the the learnings 
What are key takeaways from digital chocolate that you still think about today? There are so many. So I, I feel like that was really the, in a way, school for me. I, I learned really a lot during those years. I really appreciated the time. I was still really unexperienced when the acquisition happened in 2004. I, I got to work with some really smart people, especially at the US office. There were some uh, experienced people, Trip to name, name one, and it was really eye-opening. I would say in, in good and bad, but that's how things usually are. I learned a lot of organizational things about building a company, especially what not to do or how, how things are, are not done optimally. The digital chocolate was at its peak about 350 people in four offices. So so there were quite a bit of people. It was quite a big operation at the time. So uh, those organizational decisions we did, how we built the company, I feel like I've learned a lot from those, especially, like I said, how not to do things. And those learnings are also here at Metacore, how, how we could do things differently. I don't know if they still are a right thing to do, but at least I know one way how they should not be done. Do you think like there's there's a specific way that what the leadership of Trip Hawkins, like some things that you still think about what he, well, how he operated that, that you've embedded into like how you think about leadership? Yeah, I would say that there are, there are many things I've learned. Maybe one of the key learnings from, from that was that Trip Hawkins was really, he, he is a, a visionary. I still even lately have been thinking that uh, Trip foresee some things. Of course, the thing about visionary is that you, you don't foresee exactly how things will be, but you see where things are heading and what could be. And then it comes down to the organization to really unleash that, create that vision. And uh, that was one of the tough things. I guess it's always hard to to unleash the vision, create the, like uh, start building towards the vision. But it is especially hard when you think of it from an organization point of view. How do you structure organization to work in that mode in the first place? So yeah, there, there were... Uh, a, lot, a lot of learnings in that space. Yeah, very fascinating. Then after your days at Digital Chocolate, you spent several years away from a founder role, a gaming-specific operational role. Uh, you talked about setting up this startup accelerator imitating Y Combinator. How was that experience for you and how did it shape you in dealing with startups? Yeah, it was interesting. So I, I jumped into a space that I, I didn't have experience in. I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn about investing. I was really interested in many, many things at the time. I was interested in, in startups, building business. Startup stories often are interesting they they like how you how you navigate the space how you form the original first hypothesis and then how you navigate to make it a success and uh, i felt that i didn't feel like i want to focus on one thing but i wanted to be working on, on multiple things and i learned a lot again the hard way it's first of all about investing it's not easy and also at the time the investment scene in finland was changing quite fast there were government supported accelerators that were popping up also there were new VC funds and so forth. So the space was not was not easy. Also, maybe the environment was not ripe for really that sort of investing mechanics that, that we thought. I learned about myself quite, quite a bit as well. So I, I learned that I really enjoyed more when I have really skin in the game. So when I focus on one thing, I really get deep into it. I learn all the details about that thing and then focus on that. And uh, working with a tightly knit team who, who share the same values, same vision, and so forth. And that's the, the track. Once I got back on that, that track, uh, I haven't, haven't gone back to the other one anymore. And I feel like this is more, more me than trying to do it more broadly. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So Metacore was actually first called Everwear Games. And you worked on games for wearables like Apple Watch. And then you eventually decided to pivot 
from watches to mobile. And as we've talked previously, you, you guys actually did another pivot inside mobile as well. So I wanted to talk to you about pivoting, about what is challenging, what is hard about pivoting, and what you've learned about these pivots regarding how, how to do them effectively. Yeah, I don't know if I, I have any like ground rules for, for doing pivots. I have experience in, in pivots in doing them, but I feel like each pivot is unique. The only thing in common with, with these pivots is that in hindsight, the decision to pivot is obvious or has been always obvious. And actually it should have been done earlier already. So it, it feels like, why did we wait this long? What, what took, took us so long? Talking about everywhere games, so originally we got excited about a new platform, smartwatches, like what kind of games would work on, on, on that platform. And uh, thinking about when a new platform is born, uh, games are often the first killer apps, among the first killer apps uh, on any given platform. So it sort of made sense as well. I've also, also been, I've been the kind of person that I get excited about disruptive innovation strategy and so forth. And those are theories that new platforms combined with disruptive innovation, Blue Ocean, that sounded really uh, exciting to me. But I think eventually with every, Everywhere Games, I learned that that's, that's kind of like a mistake that I, I often have done. And I, I started questioning that. If you really believe in disruptive, disruptive innovation, Blue Ocean, then also oftentimes there might not be a market that you operate in. You have to start building the market first. You have to start educating your audience. That can be a really long, long road. Of course, you can hit on something really big, but it can also be a tough road. The thing about uh, what made the pivot for Everywhere Games hard was that we had actually quite some success in smartwatches. We had launched four games for those Apple had chosen as, as game of the year. We had lively community around those games, especially RuneBlade uh, had a strong community of players who were really fond of the games. We had some revenue. So we, we had sort of like, we had something that if we were to pivot, we would have to give up. We have achieved something. And often I think this is one of the things that, that makes pivots harder. If pivots would be obvious, then like if you wouldn't have anything, it would be obvious to, to do the pivot, get to the decision. But for us, what made the difference was that our level of ambition was high. And then we were looking at the smartwatches as an industry through that lens. Like how long it takes until the market is big enough that we can do really like large scale games. And back in the day, in 2018, we we're thinking that it might be another five years. If I look, it's like four years since that. And uh, if I now look at the market, it still might be another five years, at least a couple, couple more years. And then we were thinking about also like, so what, what could be? Like, where would the pivot be? What would be pivot to? And the mobile games market was more exciting than ever. There was a time when the top crossing charts, they were almost like static. There were no changes, no new games came to the charts. But in, in around uh, 2017, 2018, the lists have become a lot more dynamic again. It started around 2016, actually, really the, the change. So the market looked a lot more exciting also. One of the big learnings for me was that I had been a big believer in, in disruptive innovation, Blue Ocean, and so forth up to that point. And I hadn't thought that competition is actually good. Without competition, you don't, then you have to start building the market. It might be that there is no, no market at all in the end, even no, no matter how, how hard you work. And in mobile, we had a market and we saw that actually that market is not perfect. It's far from perfect. It's not a mature market yet. And that's what made the pivot sort of easy in the end. In hindsight, we maybe should have done that earlier, but, but, but yeah, eventually we, we did it. Yeah, I wanted to ask, like, do you think a pivot happens 
even though you don't have an idea what you're going to do in like the new environment that you're entering? Or do you always want to first discover the idea and then go into that new platform, new environment, new business model? It's really interesting that, that you ask that because that's one of my conclusions that you should know where to pivot to. But I'm not sure if it's a necessity, but it definitely makes things easier. And at least it makes the decision easier. It makes it easier to align the team on that new uh, new goal that you have. But with uh, so with Everywhere Games, the level of ambition was the, the thing that like made a difference. In the end, we our level of ambition was higher than what uh, the smartwatch market enabled uh, us to achieve. In case of the mobile pivot, so you're referring to when we started started working on mobile games, we had been playing a game called Merge Dragons. We had gotten uh, excited about that. We saw, saw uh, it was a great reference game in a way that we saw many ways how to improve the experience. And we, we thought that the game is, uh, now we know better, but we thought that it's maybe for some sort of big core audience back in the day, because it was really hard to read what is the audience really. And we didn't have access to data. So we started working on a game with Merge Core Loop for mid-core audience. Back in the day already, we wanted to uh, be working in a really iterative mode and in a fast cycle. And we developed a version of the game which had the first session in it only. We we spent about three months working on that. And then we started testing it by using Playtest Cloud. And we did the test on mid-core audience and on the casual audience as defined by, uh, by Playtest Cloud. And we learned that the mid-core audience, they, they didn't hate the game, but they didn't like it either. It was like in the two to three star range out of five. We did the same test. Uh, we ran the same test for casual audience and the results were somewhat similar, but there were some exceptions. There were th- some players who were really, really excited about the game. They played, uh, so the first session lasted for about 20 minutes and the one who played for the longest played for one and a half hours and she would have wanted to continue playing, but the game didn't have a save state, so, so it floated from memory. And she was really disappointed that she couldn't continue playing. And in this case, so we were, of course, disappointed that the game failed. But I would say that we failed with direction because we saw that there are some of these these players who really enjoy what we have. When we started asking them, who is this game for? Like, what, what is this game about? These players started guessing. No one said, this is for me. But they started guessing, like uh, stay-home moms or teenagers or so forth. But that gave us a clue that, that we actually might be onto something, but the audience should be casual audience. And that's when we did a pivot into casual audience. Uh, we used much of the old structure with the merge two and with the mechanics and, and the game structure. But then we, we started uh, from scratch working on the theme and premise for the game and so forth. So again, in this case, the pivot was actually quite easy because we really failed, but we failed with direction. And we had a new direction to continue on. So I would say that if you if you have a direction where to go to with the team, it definitely makes the pivot easier. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's that's kind of like a, a feeling that if you see others in the genre, how they're doing, what kind of games they have, then you come up with the idea. I think there's a lot of factors that play into how you get buy-in for the whole company for a pivot. I've, I've gone through a few of those. And- they've always been really good experience i haven't really experienced a bad pivot it's interesting i don't know if you can pivot into into a wrong category that's a good point i haven't had a bad pivot either i wonder i should really think harder maybe my my mind is playing tricks on me but that's a good point yeah so let's talk more about metacore you have been launching and growing your game merge mansion during the pandemic and it's been an amazing story growth story also if you've gone from having much smaller team to having a much bigger team i think 
none of us were kind of experts on making these games with the remote team before, but how has this process evolved for you to, to work remotely on a, on a big game? Yeah, it's been a really interesting learning experience. When the pandemic started in, in March 2020, we had already locked down our global launch dates. So we were planning on going out in mid-September. And we also, we needed to go on a fundraise. We thought we would do it later in the spring and all, all of that. And then the pandemic hit and it forced all of us into remote mode. And at first, I was really afraid of, of how things are going. How are we going to cope with this? And especially because seeing that we already had the global launch date somewhere in the future, we knew that the KPIs for the game were really excellent. Like, would all of this fall apart? And I was really surprised about how things played out in the end. So with the team, we, we moved into remote mode. Video calls worked surprisingly well. Things were moving forward. We didn't have any big crisis or anything. And, and it felt like the project is, is moving forward. We will be making the, the deadline. We'll be getting the game out mid-September globally. Also, we were able to seek a funding, uh, funding round. We had video calls with... Uh, originally, I thought that it's not possible to get any funding. But actually, I think that it played for us. We were on an equal footing with the investors because it was not about us traveling to investors' offices to meet with them. But we were all in our homes, in, in, in uh, spare bedrooms or, or whatever, and, and had, to, had to deal with the situation. So I think that it actually might have been good for us in the end. But the interesting thing was that when it seemed like the, the pandemic eased up a bit, we many of us got back to the office. And uh, so this was like one and a half months before our global launch. It felt like people had, had a need to meet each other, talk with each other face-to-face -face and so forth. And at that point, I became afraid that now, now we are not going to uh, like uh, make the global launch. We still had a long list of things to do because people are not working. We are just talking. But then I thought that it's, it's all right because, because we have been uh, working remotely for such a long, long time that uh, we need to keep, uh, keep people uh, the space. And it was really, really amazing to see that even though people were speaking and apparently not doing any uh, like efficient work, things just magically happened. Things just clicked in, clicked in place. We have been discussing this with the team quite a few times after that, like what happened? Why was this? And uh, the conclusions that we came to was that uh, we had accumulated creative depth over the months that we were working remotely. So technically, we were able to move things forward by, by using Zoom calls and so forth. But really, the things needing creative decisions and creative teamwork, those didn't happen almost at all or not at all over Zoom calls. And, and then when we got to the same space again, got to the office, even though we were, we were also talking about a lot about other things, those decisions happened. Maybe they had been boiling in the back of the heads of the people already. And it, it might be that it comes down to like really small things. It, it could that for video calls, one-to-one -one calls work quite all right. But if you have even three people, there's lack. People stop talking when they, they start talking on top of each other and so forth. We start self-censoring what we say. So before we even say what we have in our mind, we start thinking that this actually this is a dumb idea or this doesn't work or I, I'd rather not say this. So I think it might be about really small things in the end, but that's, that's what we learned about creative work. Also, I haven't been a big believer in remote work myself before. And I learned that really, this again is obvious, but people are different. I, I want to have, I need to have people around me. I need to have physical meets with people, but there are people who can focus a lot better in their own safe environment rather than at the office. So, so the ideal conditions differ from people to people. Yeah, that's really interesting when you talk about the creative debt that was occurring there. 
with teams and, and culminating in decisions not being efficiently made. Do you think like, because the pandemic is getting easier now to cope with, then what are the ways that you want to move forward? Is it like a hybrid model that you're going to be pursuing now in the company? So it's, it's still maybe too early to say what are the like really true learnings from all of this. We are going into hybrid mode. That's what we are experimenting with. Actually, pretty much continuing the way we have been working along for some time already. So we expect teams to meet physically uh, on a regular basis. We don't force any dates or any times that teams or people should do that, but it's really up to the teams to decide. And then if you want to work remotely, if you feel like that's that's uh, where you can focus the most on the execution side of things, then then that's fine. That's that's like the moral we adapt. I think overall, I'm seeing a big change in how video calls are being used. So early on, there were maybe voice calls. There was uh, communication over email. There were physical meetings. Now many of those have moved over to video calls, like working with partners. And uh, we have a lot of regular video calls with, with our partners nowadays. And I feel like that's made working with, with uh, third parties a lot more efficient as well. And I, I see the barrier for me to travel is really high nowadays, even within the same city, like even within, within Helsinki. I would rather have a video call because it saves so much time. So yeah, time will tell. That being said, we just moved uh, into a new office and we wanted to make the, the office, like we wanted to see what are the learnings for the working space in the shed. And uh, we have a desk for, for everybody. We don't want to go into a hot desk mode, but we feel like uh, each of us should have a space uh, there, a uh, space that we can make comfortable. We can make, make look out like our own. We have different kind of spaces for meeting with people. So we have the traditional Meeting rooms, all are with uh, video equipment, but then we also have uh, working lounges, quite a few of those actually, uh, to enable people uh, to meet ad hoc or then arrange meetings in, in those places. And as I said, time will tell how this all this works out for us. But I'm actually, if, if there are something positive outcomes uh, from the pandemic, bad outcomes, bad, bad sad things from, from that, then these are the positive ones. Learning about work, learning about creative work, learning to use uh, video calls efficiently and, and all of this. Yeah, and then, then you, you, you're not getting into the routine of doing five times a week commuting to work, but you're breaking that into this, the hybrid mode of doing some of the work from wherever you want, which I think enables a lot of more creative thinking and this kind of knowledge work can be more like for what you feel is the right thing for you versus like everybody needs to be at the office every day. Yeah, it, yeah. it's like the, the nine to five has been has been somewhat of a joke already uh, uh, before the pandemic. But I think already looking at, at this now, like the, the, the world before pandemic, that we work in the office five days per week from like for certain hours, certain block of time. It feels like at least to me, it begs the question, why? Why did we even do it this way? Because... If we allow like remote work, like in, in this hybrid mode, it gives people a lot, a lot more flexibility. Some people have a long commute and it, it might be that there's long commute combined with the family. Why would it make sense to force people to come to the office on, on, on the, all those five days at certain hours? It's, it's like, yeah, why? Why did we work in this? Yeah. And like in this model, even those people who were, were working remotely, before the pandemic, they're now, now more in a situation where it's more acceptable that you're not at the office. <laughs> it, it just balances everything out. Going back to your 
big career, long career in games. We've been over 20 years doing games. Are you still picking up new things about building games companies? Well, the, the short, short answer is that yes. I feel like I've learned in the past three years more than, than in the 20 years before that. It's, uh, and I, I would say that if, if you wouldn't have learned, been learning new things, then like, you wouldn't have been keeping up with the development of the industry because the industry has been changing a lot. Thinking back when I started working on, on, on at Remedy on PC and console games, the industry looked completely different. The audiences were a lot more limited. The platforms were a lot more limited. So yeah, a lot has changed. But also I've learned, learned about uh, organization, building teams, about creative work, all of that. It, it really keeps you humble to work in games. Do you, like, this is a, a question that I've been thinking a lot about. Like, since you've seen so much happen, where do you see the essence in game teams, in games companies, where they can really increase the likelihood of success with a game? I think it's it's really good question. And I don't really have, a, like, answer to that one. It is sort of a moving target. If you think how the market is evolving, there are new audiences playing games. The platforms keep on developing. There's there's so much that you would need to be able to spot where are the where are the opportunities for small teams. But I think looking at the big picture, thinking about the entertainment industry uh, more broadly, and and thinking that uh, mobile games is one part of this. And then if you look at more mature spaces, areas of this industry, like movies and TV series. And then if you try to envision, like, because if you look at that, the Delta is quite big at the moment. So movies, TV series, they look like mature markets. They are serving serving certain audiences. Of course, there's also change, a lot of change in there, but there's also a lot more stability when it comes to structures and so forth. So if you compare it to how the mobile games industry looks like at the moment, I see that there are like big, big gaps that we are still missing in the market, just like starting from from the idea that we as game makers, we are we are passionate about making games. We are oftentimes self-taught, and and certain things are easier to learn than others. Thinking about positioning, thinking about starting from the audience, those don't come naturally that naturally to us. We have been really like technical. We have been focused on, on core mechanics and uh, meta structure. And if you think if we were making cars, that's a bit like us focusing on what's under under the hood, what kind of engine in the car is, what are the technicalities. Whereas when people go buy cars, they first most likely they pick pick a brand, then they look at the model. It might be that it's more functional if they have a family, if they need just need a city car or so forth. Then they look how the car looks, shape of the car, color of the car, and all of that. And in games, we really talk about the technicalities. What, like in what, what in games would be the brand of the car or the shape of the car, color of the car, functionality of the car, and so forth. So I think there are, there are big holes and big opportunities for, for uh, new teams there and also existing companies to compete with. Really good. Yeah, I've been thinking about capital allocation as, a, as an at- attribute for a leader in a games company. Like, because you can really like raise as much capital as you you'd need or want from these markets, but can you actually like allocate the funds in a way? So I think that that's the essence really, that how good you're at doing that, how effective you are. And that's, yeah, and that's a really, really good question and tricky question, because if you think about it, developing games is not that costly. If, if you have a, so maybe, Maybe to, to go back a bit, a couple of steps. The way we approach game making is that we divide the development into phases. And in phase one, the goal of the team is to find market fit 
for the idea. In this stage, it's best if the team is as small as possible. Three to six people is most likely optimal. And that's because oftentimes in this phase, you have to do pivots. You, you start with the idea, you start with hypotheses, forming hypotheses, and then you start testing them. And most often than not, your hypotheses are not right. But you see that there is, there is something here which is going to this direction. And then aligning the team on those new goals, the smaller the team is, the easier it is. But when you find a market fit, then you have to start scaling the team as well. So for a long time, we thought that small teams are the best like over the course of uh, developing games, starting from early phase, early stage uh, of game development, but also spanning all the way to the live stage. And we looked up, up towards uh, Supercell, like how they, their teams operate and what is the team size that they have. And uh, we, we did pay attention to other competition, like uh, the other companies, other teams at the top of the charts. They have 100 plus teams, the biggest ones being 400 plus, like for Honor of, Honor of Kings. But we thought arrogantly that uh, we are smarter than them. We can work a lot more efficiently than them. But then we learned last year, actually one of the learnings, biggest learnings for last year was that actually small team do anymore. But you just need a bigger team because you need you need a lot more content. And uh, the idea for us was that we'll, we'll keep on scaling the team for as long as it makes sense. So you go from a like super small team when you're looking for a market fit to this bigger team when you have found market fit and you want to run the game as a global global service, uh, global operation. And that's that's really, really a big challenge. Then it also comes down to, as you said, about capital allocation. Even that bigger team, even if, if it would be 100, 100 people or hundreds of people, the costs of that team could still be marginal compared to marketing, compared to other costs of, of running the business and, and scaling the business. So capital allocation is, is a key question here as well. Then the, the next step then, going from where we see the free-to-play games companies nowadays. It's, it's quite hard for any company to break this $10 billion valuation barrier. I think Supercell is there, but even going to $20 billion, it's like it doesn't seem like it's very easy for anybody. But do you think that like there could be models out there that could make sense? Like small teams, yes gradually scaling those teams but what else is there to break the barriers so i believe that they they most likely there they will be many ways uh, to do that and i can only speak for for our approach which is quite quite traditional quite typical so our approach is to build a portfolio of uh, hit games and then uh, the question for us is how to uh, consistently produce hit games how we can find the model how we can find a process where process doesn't exist in this space but i think at the same time looking at the market like we really feel that the market is, is far from maturity and that makes it easier to spot opportunities and see where growth could come from but eventually like we have seen with uh, for example nfts there are these new areas where value is being generated in in like radically different ways than in games i think the uh, value multipliers in game for games companies have traditionally traditionally been quite low and that's been one thing, uh, keeping the valuations in, in line as well. So, yeah, let's see. It will be interesting to see. But as I said, our goal is to, to build a portfolio consistently. It's a lot of hard work. It, it's not, not that sexy. It doesn't sound that sexy. But I, I believe that eventually we'll get there. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. So as the last question before we go to the final questions, what is your advice for a team who is just getting started in making games let's say, in, in mobile? That's a really good question. And I'm not sure if I'm the right person to give uh, give anyone advice. But if I think, if I were to start this again, I would start from asking the team, what are our goals? What do we want to achieve? And making sure that we are aligned 
uh, aligned with those. And then I think you have to find as a team, you have to find your own ways, uh, own, own voice and way how to do things. It doesn't make sense. There's a lot of uh, copying uh, going on in the in the games industry. We we not only copy uh, each other's game ideas, but we also copy ads. And that that doesn't make any sense. If you look at any other area of, of like entertainment industry that is more mature, that's not that's not the dynamics in play. So so how do you how do you like compete in that space? Like I said earlier, competition is good. It's like uh, if you're a professional athlete, you don't think what is my promotion strategy or, or how I apply disruptive innovation, but you see what are my strengths and how do I compete against these other athletes? That's the approach that we should also be taking more and more of as the, the market is maturing. Yeah. Really excellent. Final questions, Mika. What's your favorite book and why? That's a really, really tough question. I really love books. I have uh, too little time to read nowadays, but there are some some like really great books. If I, I can't choose just one, but the first one on my list would be Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull. And uh, Ed Catmull is, is one of my heroes, like really. From early on already, I remember seeing Ed Catmull's name in these uh, like Sigraph papers about uh, text mapping and, and whatnot technologies that enable 3D graphics. Later on learning what was motivating him is really inspiring because he really wanted to be creating uh, animations and he eventually, he eventually uh, got to do really great uh, animated movies with Pixar. And uh, Creativity Inc. Is, is a source of inspiration as well as practical tools, I think, for, for any entrepreneur, but especially if you are working in the creative industry. It's a really, really great book. Another company I look up towards is uh, Netflix for different reasons. But there's a book called uh, No Rules Rules by Reed Hastings and Erin Meyer. And that's also a really, really fascinating book. And this comes down to building organizations and uh, the learnings they have had. Netflix has really exceptional culture, and that's been talked a lot about. I don't think it makes sense to copy anyone's culture, but you have to create your own. But again, No Rules Rules is a great source of inspiration for seeing how to do things differently. And then there's third author, and, and like really author, I think you should read anything you get, get into your hands. But the book is called Hard Things About Hard Things, and by it's written by Ben Horowitz. And that's a great, like really great story about entrepreneurship and, and about the ups and downs of, of uh, trying to create, build companies. So those three books are maybe at the top of my list at the moment. Yeah, yeah uh, actually, like read both creativity inc and uh, hard things about hard things like eight ten like 10 to eight years ago when they came out and it feels like because i now reread them and you get so much more out of rereading these really good books because you can reflect what you've learned in the last years where it's kind of the insight that those books have you can digest them in a different way. And it's been super fascinating to reread really a lot of good books. I fully agree on that. I've read uh, all of these at least twice and, and some even, even more times. It is yeah. fascinating. And that's also yeah. really a way to see what you have, how you have changed. Exactly. Yeah. Do you have a story that shaped you and how you approach your work today? I don't have a story, but if you think about making games, I believe that making games is an iterative process, and I feel the same about like personal growth and about about how you how I work. Over the years, I've been learning a lot from mistakes and uh, mistakes or things done unoptimally, and usually those are the ones uh, those are the learnings that that stick with you the most. Like there are still some 
some learnings that I can bring back to my mind now that feel painful even now, like even if they happened like 15 years ago, they still feel painful. These learnings, they form, so they, in a way, they, they tell you, maybe you see what you did unoptimally or wrong, what you could do better, but they also ser- uh, form certain biases that we should be aware of. And I'm trying to like all, all the time learn about my mistakes, but also see what kind of biases my, my like uh, mistakes or things have, have caused that I should be aware of. And I've, I've noticed that oftentimes I have the tendency to like overbalance things. If I do a mistake, I might go to the other end of the scale and then I have to understand to come back from there to find the right way. And uh, this is a constant process or struggle for me. And uh, I think it, it's, it's like basically in, in my day-to-day life all the time in there. Hey Mika, final question. If there's entrepreneurs in the audience, people who want to get in contact with you, what is the best way to do that? The best way, I'm really old-fashioned. I think the email, email is the best way. Mika, M-I-K-A at metacorgames.com is my email. That's the way to to contact me. Hey Mika, this was so much fun. Thanks for coming on and talking about these things. Like we could have done another hour about this, but maybe next time. Yeah, maybe next time. Let's continue. It was really great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks. Thank you. See you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Before you move on, please remember to follow or subscribe to our show so that you'll get notified when next week's episode is live. See you next week. Bye-bye.